0: In the Reading Corner today, I'm thrilled to have with me uh, Donna and Vikesh Amy Batt, whose new book, Land of Belongings, is published by Nosy Crow. It's a book that's published just in time for the 75th anniversary of the partition of India. But it's obviously not a book just for that one moment. In fact, it's a book that I can't believe that we haven't had before. And I'd like to start really with your story and why you thought this book was needed.
1: For me, growing up in the UK um, in the 80s and 90s and really going through the education system, it was uh, an interesting time and a time where I, I really didn't know where I sort of fitted it in um, within schools to paint a, big, a better picture. The main, thing, main things in history were taught, you know, royal family, um, the world wars, um, the Greeks, the Romans, and 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 being an age, being a South Asian boy within the UK, I really didn't understand my place because I didn't. I obviously visually looked different, and and also knowing my my parents' story, um, they they are from Africa, East Africa, Tanzania to be precise, but also as I say, we're we're South Asian, so no. So I'm trying to understand not only my my context within the UK, but within the broader context about. You know Tanzania, East Africa, but then also being Indian-looking. So it was that it was that sort of story that was you know only until in my twenties and thirties that I started to start to un- unravel uh, through conversation, through meeting friends, through through talking with Donna as well. Um, you know, like simple things like you know I, I I love fish and chips, but I but I put like you know I like to spice it up with chilies on top of it. You know, and I, my parents talked to me in, in Swahili, Gujarati, and Swahili is a is an African language, Gujarati is an uh, an Indian uh, language, uh, and I'd reply to them in English. So it's a real um, a real mixture of 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 thoughts, but also language, growing up, and taste, and it was all quite knotted and raveled in my head, and I didn't really know how to unknot it. So this book is a look at the past. The present of British Asians and South Asians in 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 the UK and the future and 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 talking about the the effect and the future and what what that holds for um the South Asians within within uh, within the UK. And we know now, writing written, now we've written this book that India, Pakistan, and the UK have been intertwined for hundreds of years, and they will always continue to be intertwined. Mm.
0: because I think an an important point that you actually do make uh, in the book is that this is not just about the history of people that have South Asian heritage this is British history
2: yeah I think that Vic has always kind of spoken about doing something like this and the idea that we put together for a book was kind of the second half of this book which was the celebration of what South Asian people are brought to the UK the positive side of immigration the food the, the words the things that you might not know are South Asian and we kind of put together a pitch for the second half of the book maybe starting from partition I think is where we um, the idea for the book was originally, so we would start a partition and then then kind of say, and because of that, we've got all these amazing people living here. This is what they've bought here. But actually, the process of pitching meant that we spoke to different publishers who had different ideas for the book. Nosy Crow made kind of this um, uh, incredible build to what we had, which was completely made sense. You can't tell that part of history without really going back further. So that is why the book now, thanks to them, is so much more comprehensive. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm white, I've got British family, and obviously Vic isn't, um, but we both had exactly the same gaps in our knowledge. So we both kind of knew little bits. um, And then as we started investigating both of us didn't know these huge parts of history or fully understand them. And yeah, exactly what you said. They are British history. Yeah. And
1: just to jump in there. It, it, yeah, absolutely. 100% is British history. And it's not just one moment of time. You know, you start to sort of see how these two polar extreme places are so intertwined. And that could be how a company, you know, a British company occupied India in, in sort of ancient Indian times. But then you sort of fast forward into the modern day and you talk about how, you know, South Asians came to the country and, and helped during the wars and helped post-war in terms of the NHS and helping building that from, a, from the foundations up. So you can kind of see how it isn't just South Asian history, it is British history and it's seismic British history mm-hmm. um, that um, South Asians have played within paving modern Britain.
0: There's so much that I want to explore. I mean, the idea of belonging um, is key to this book, and I think you've expressed that really well. And I love that bit uh, at the beginning, uh, Vikesh, where you talk about your background and you you mentioned the eggs and the fish and chips and everything else. Um, It reminded me a little bit of an activity that I used to do when I was training teachers where I would get them to do the same, even if they have backgrounds similar to mine because you suddenly realise that most of us, you know, that idea of belonging, do I belong to Yorkshire? Do I belong to London? It's not on such a grand scale, but we all have little bits of us, well, most of us anyway, have little bits of us that belong in different cultural pockets. Um, And I love that idea of exploring that with children.
1: Yeah. What? Well, yeah. Absolutely. And belonging is is simply about you know your narrative. You know, and and as a cult, as the as the world is, it becomes ever smaller and we become ever connected, um, finding that that um, authentic your personal authentic narrative is, uh, I believe, really important. And and I think the really interesting thing is how that narrative is intertwined with with other you know larger narratives out there. So. I think belonging is so important and it allows, you know, just just, just for a bit of context, really, you know, I, I've got family, I've got cousins um, who are similar age or slightly younger. And I, and I talk to younger South Asian, British South Asians. And still to this day, there is this idea in their head through through maybe miscommunication or miseducation or, or lack of education. But they still feel like it's, it's us, us and them. If they, still, they do not feel rooted in in Great Britain, and that's shocking, because that's obviously a generation young, younger than me. And if this book does one thing, and that is you know allow people to contextualize and feel their worth based on historic merit and, and the, the, their attributes have, are welcome, valid and important with modern Britain. I'd
0: Like to delve into the history. little bit because you do take us back to ancient india uh you take us back to a time um, when india was ruled by lots of kings of course the book really is about those three modern countries of pakistan india and bangladesh yeah back in those ancient times Was it a recognisable country called India or were these kingdoms separate countries?
2: Yeah, so yeah, it was a country, but in terms of having a ruler, it was probably a little bit chaotic. So there were lots of dynasties, kind of lots of kings, and that's kind of what made it easier for the British and Uh, the Dutch and anyone else who was up for it at the time, made it a little bit easier for them to take a um, a stake in it because they were already arguing amongst themselves. So it really was kind of a divide and conquer type situation. And then it was the East India uh, Company were not just kind of trading food and spices, that kind of thing. They also brought over armies, so they would muscle in on these arguments um, between the kingdoms and... and that's kind. Of, they kind of got involved politically that way. So it's like a really, it's just a, an amazing thing that no one fully understands. We all kind of we see East India Company in in the modern day. There's still the East India Club. There's still the East India label and lots of things. But actually, what they did was so much more than trade. Um, it was a huge political force and um, really interesting.
0: It's fascinating because people don't think about commercial interest being something that gets involved in the running yeah. and the ruling of a country. Of course, like you can see lots of parallels with that today. And but I think most people probably their knowledge starts with Queen Victoria and Empire oh, yeah, cool. and doesn't yeah. see the connection between that and what had gone on. And that yeah. they're really kind of empire is hooking into something that had already been built.
2: Definitely. And I think um, a good way that it is explained quite often is thinking of the East India Company as kind of as large as one of the large tech giants, like so they're kind of as large as that they've got the same kind of um, political sway. But like in terms of explaining that to a child or explaining that to a a me, um, it really helps kind of you realise the size of it and their influence
1: and just to sort of be really clear, the East India Company took advantage of conflicts. And this wasn't, let's, let's be really clear, this wasn't an amicable, verbal, softly, softly type of approach. Sometimes it would be violently done. And so the sway, the power up within India uh, happened with violence and aggression.
0: And th- this went on for a long time. 400 years ago, Elizabeth I, so she them the go-ahead to
2: invade India in the first instance, so it was formed 400 years ago at the East India Company. Mm-hmm. And then that gradually began to be the start of the British Empire, so you can kind of see how that kind of folded into that because it became this political force, and as we know, the British Empire became pretty
0: big. What happened then in terms of this handover of political power to, uh, I know it was kind of sold to Queen Victoria, the Empress of India and all of that. So it
2: was essentially the East India Company was a company ruling a country. And as Vic said, it was violent. It was unfair. And so essentially there were a lot of uprisings. It was clear they couldn't really keep control of the people. They had such different beliefs. Things like their religions were overlooked, which I think was quite a huge part of it. So yeah, it became essentially untenable for them to look after India. And so it was handed over officially to Queen Victoria, which is, I think, a period in history, I think is quite interesting, especially for me as a, as I say, a white person and Vikesh talking about it, it was sold to us as white people as quite a glamorous and interesting time. Like, unless you really investigate it, and understand why that time was what it was,
0: it's quite shocking. So, from my knowledge of India, yeah. first of all, it's a very big place. It's so diverse. If you think of the north and the south, and, yeah. you know, and, and the people that live there, and you know, the, the numbers of religions that are practiced, and any attempt to kind of homogenize it to me. Um must have been really uh, challenging. I mean, it's such a rich place.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it really is. And you know, it, you, you talk about the sort of the cultural difference between English and Scottish people, and that, and like, it, you know, Britain is such a smaller landmass to India. And as you say, you know, from the climate to the food to the the cultures to the the, the gods, I feel it's it, it's countries within countries. So yeah, absolutely to to run to run it with one ruler and how marginalised, as you say, and and one set of rules, sounds like an impossible task.
2: And as you, yeah, as we kind of, I guess we'll touch upon in a minute, it is kind of why partitioning India was an impossible task for anyone, let alone someone who hadn't been to India before, to kind of draw lines through it. Yeah, and
1: that's, and that's definitely a really important point. And Queen Victoria, the Empress of India, never never went to India. But it didn't stop her, you know, uh, getting gifts and getting, you know, presents, and for her to also be exchanging gifts with the maharajas there, and and commissioning portraitures of of large vistas of India being sent back to her. So she she was in one part extremely in control, but in the other part very disconnected from the harsh realities of what India consisted of and the people of it.
0: Mm. So let's come to both the First World War. And the second world war really being a big drain on the finances of Britain. And at that point, you know, to, to have a to have an empire takes money. You, you get money, but it takes money too. And they sort of lost the will, didn't they, to be involved in India at that point.
1: Yeah, wars take wars cost a lot of money through resource, through personnel, and, and you're absolutely right, you know, and and just to sort of talk some numbers here you know the first world war up to 1.5 million soldiers volunteered from india and and second world war 2.3 million soldiers signed up the largest volunteer force in history so you know that the, the sort of significant drain not only on the british armed forces but also the indian mm-hmm. um, as a coalition after the wars you could tell that you know through through death and through through pure exhaustion and through financial draining it just wasn't sustainable to to run and govern a, a country
2: and they were it's worth saying as well fighting for their independence so they were told that if you join The fight um, and we win you'll be granted independence so like it's an amazing thing isn't it we say like a volunteer army but they weren't fighting for the same cause as us they were fighting for India to be a a independent from the British so it's so and obviously there was a second war as well (laughs) and so towards the end of that they um yeah they had to be granted independence
0: and that's where we come to, you know, really modern history that's had such a huge impact. What do you do when you, you know, you've had this control and a country is going to gain its independence? What's the right way to do this? And for those that don't know as much about partition, perhaps tell us a little bit about the background.
2: Simply put, there were two arguments. One, Gandhi, he believed that it should be united in India. And we've always they've always lived side by side, different religions all together. Um, But then there was the pro partition argument, which was Hinduism was the main religion within India at the time. And so uh, Muslims and Sikhs, many of them perhaps um, believed that the laws would be Hindu laws and they were laws that they didn't want to live under. So some people believed Um, The country should be divided. So there's an area for Hindus, an area for Sikhs and Muslims. Um, And eventually they partitioned what was was agreed.
1: And partition, it was an extremely bizarre thing in lots of instances. It simply was drawing two lines that divided the country into three spaces. And the most bizarre thing uh, in our research and in history um, was the British employed someone called cyril radcliffe and and cyril radcliffe was given five weeks to decide the fate of almost 400 million people and the most bizarre thing about cyril radcliffe was that he'd never been to india before so you can see the mammoth task as we mentioned earlier on about you know the Pure diversity of India and the wealth and the and the people and you know all those nuances within India, and then to draft someone in on this concept of division, who had never set foot in India, for me just feels like such a, a bizarre construct. Um, but also the way that he went about dividing the country with this quite archaic way of categorising people and properties and wealth was also just very um bizarre
2: yeah because i think he kind of went off like railways and that kind of thing you know logical things for someone looking at a map but um definitely not logical for the people who lived there so what pa- people basically did was woke up realized they were living in the wrong part of the country because of their religion and had to move which was chaotic in and, uh, and it and has
1: violent had to-
2: very violent yeah. yeah
1: yeah and I think this is the sort of stuff that when we were doing our research that some of the stuff that really upset me um within the research is quite harrowing very harrowing in parts and as Donna said imagine one day you know being in a place that you've you've grown up that your father's 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 father, you know you've, you've known for many years uh to be home to then be told to move based on your your religion Um, And there was no there was no argument about it. And this then spurred the largest land migration of human beings ever in in history, the uprooting and the moving of Hindus and Muslims in somewhat uh, opposite directions. And as you say, this was uh, extremely violent. You know, people would be on these um, these express trains out of where they lived to their new home. And some people didn't make it. They were looted. They were killed whilst travelling. And we're not talking about a few. We are talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Because if you can imagine, at this time, the British had left. They were leaving. And the pillars of society, the comfort, the safety, the laws were coming down. And so all this unrest just bubbled up. And this huge migration... Uh, caused extreme friction and, and devastation
2: yeah and there just wasn't also the infrastructure to get people from one place to the other they were kind of just blindly knew they couldn't be where they were living but like couldn't really tell where to head and it's worth also noting the british they said they'd grant independence in two years but they kind of left straight straight away so they the armies and anything that Perhaps could have assisted them,
0: yeah, which is kind wonder of. If we've learned anything. Oh well, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's kind of similar to recent uh, things. So as well as so, far, like, all we've talked about is the bit of the book that you didn't even know you were going to write. Yeah, we've we've gone into uh, some of the deepest, darkest uh, yeah. aspects of history, um and then from there we get this huge diaspora, not only to the United Kingdom or to Britain, but. As you say, travelling to um, a, a lot to Africa in the nineteen seventies, we had a lot of people coming from Uganda to uh, Britain from, from. Um, who'd obviously been through that kind of journey too. But from then on, the book does have lots of joy in it as well yeah. as the difficulties that people encountered.
1: This is where the journey for us starts to feel um, again an, ex- an extension of the friction. It wasn't, again, all rosy when, when Sikhs and Hindus and Muslims arrived in within Britain. And when we say Britain, we made sure that this wasn't a London-centric book. We talk about Scunthorpe and Lancaster and Manchester and Woking and Cardiff. And, you know, the, it, it was very much a, a breadth, you know, the north and south of the, of the British Isles is where um, Asians came. And they came to work in the mills, textile mills. They came to work Um within uh within a more Asian settlements like Southall and, and Leicester, which is now you know a hotspot for for curries. The Golden Mile, for instance, is is what's what it's known for now. Um, and the Sikh community in Scotland, the first Sikh Scottish tartan material apparently was there as well. It was registered uh, in Edinburgh. But just to get it back to the original point, yeah, I mean we, we land in this lovely put spread where we where we show how how British South Asians have have, have helped in all aspects of, of, of Britain when they arrived. And that and that was a genuine call for help. So in 1947, South Asian people started to come to Britain in very large numbers. And after two two world wars, like this is straight after the two world wars, Britain was in ruins. And so there was an ad campaign. There were multiple campaigns around the Commonwealth to encourage South Asians to move to Britain to help build Britain post-war. And that building was a, a, num- a number of things, as I said, hospitals, the building of the NHS, textile mills, airports, transport systems, and South Asians arrived en masse to help build the empire, but build it within the UK. And one part was help and aid, but mm-hmm. the other part was, again, not to not to dip it again in terms of the grim, harsh realities, but you know, there it, there was friction, there was there was racism and uprising. This was a time where South Asians arrived en masse and that wasn't met sometimes positively. And so there were things like the South of Riots, for instance. There were, you know, the, it was the rise of the National Front at that time as well. So a lot of this stuff, you know, really came to head. There were um, signs on windows sometimes saying no no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. And there were there were things called colour bar, which essentially was places where to be of of color, you weren't allowed. You were not admitted into these places or parts of transport network, rail, for instance. So, just to bring it down, no, it was it was both a euphoric and important time for British history to help build, but there was conflict and and um, and struggle.
0: I want to take it back to the purpose of your book uh, for a moment because I remember that time really clearly. I was in secondary school, uh, living in Harrow, and a lot of new classmates coming from (sighs) Uganda. And there was nothing really to explore those connections that we had with the people that were coming. And I just think, you know, something like this, it would have been so good to have it available to us then.
1: Yeah, definitely. uh, definitely. And I think knowledge is, is power. And and if you can join those dots up, which this book hopefully allows you to do, um it allows you to contextualize, empathize and 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 celebrate as well. and I think as soon as you start joining those dots up, you 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 are then a part of the story, you know the broader context, and I think from our point of view, this book is so important because it allows modern Britain to level up their knowledge, but also it would have been great to have this at uh, uh, growing up as well yeah
2: because i think exactly what you say like you said you didn't have an understanding of the history that led the people that you found in your class there vic I didn't have an understanding as to why he he was even there so it's and uh, and like i wonder if the people that you were growing up with it felt the same way whether they had a good understanding of the situation of uh, what, what brought them so far from where mm. they had been before. It's so, it's um, mad, isn't it? Because you just assume that everyone yeah. kind of yeah. understands that. And doing our
1: really, research, we, we we were very startled that there isn't a book like this out there for children. So I think it's a book, yes, certainly that we could have had back in the day, but it's equally as important now as well to help, you know, as I said, there's no, there's nothing out there like it.
0: Mm. Can we just say, because we haven't mentioned it yet, uh, what wonderful production job that Nosy Crow have done with the book. But I also want to give a call out to your illustrator, Selene Pereira. Yeah. Um, You must have been really pleased with
2: the illustration
0: that came back.
2: We've got the book open and it's a really nice illustration she did of Vic's granddad which you can spot in the book, <laughs> page 57. But yeah, it's it's amazing when you write something and you kind of think, I just can't believe someone's taking the time to illustrate it. And then you get them back and they're so much better than you even imagined they would be. But yeah, she's put
1: a lot of love into it. And I think, you know, just from a sort of back behind the scenes sort of story, it was just lovely having a South Asian working on this or working on this book with us from a, from an illustration point of view, just to dial up that, authenticity of it and you you can tell that she's had a lot of fun with how she brings the the story to life
0: well land of belonging is out now and uh, as we said the partition of india is commemorated in august i really hope that your book finds a place in lots of classrooms across uh, britain and thank you so much for talking to me today
1: yeah, thank you. That's thank been it's, it's been amazing, and um, and we we really enjoyed writing it, and and we hope it's a book that is not only just for South Asians. We we hope that everyone can pick it up and see how they fit in this intertwined uh, history, and and to the modern day Britain. And uh, yeah, go go out and buy it.
2: In the reading corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Nosy Crow. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.